The Athletic. Formula One seemed to be all about the Schumacher brothers in the summer of 2001. Michael was taking control of the World Championship fight in a commanding first title defence with Ferrari, while Ralph was hitting his stride at Williams, even managing to beat Big Brother in that year's Canadian Grand Prix. So when they arrived on home soil at the Nürburgring, with Ralph having just signed a new contract extension at Williams, then shared the front row together in qualifying, the Schumachers were the talk of the F1 paddock, with everyone expecting a head-to-head -head battle on the Sunday. In the end, it didn't quite play out that way. Ralph was put on high alert by a classic start chop from Michael when the lights went out, and their nose-to-tail scrap came to a premature end when Ralph was penalised for crossing the white line at the pit exit, a transgression that Ferrari were believed to have flagged up to the FIA. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to talk quite a bit about the Schumachers, but also about everything else that was going on in F1 during the summer of 2001 are Matt Beer and Ed Straw. Matt, we'll come to you first. When you think of the 2001 European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay, confession time. When you asked me to be on this episode, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh yeah, that great Nürburgring race where Montoya goes around the outside of Schumacher and Schumacher spins, then Ferrari gets moaning about it. And then I realised about three hours later, that was a 2003 European Grand Prix. So <laughs> my, my, it was my first thought, but it was the wrong race. But um, it is a Montoya. When did you work out you had it wrong? It was quite ago? quickly afterwards, actually. Oh, okay. I, it was within a few hours because I hang on, Schumacher actually won that race, didn't he? Which wouldn't have computed with spinning with Montoya but when I moved on to the actual correct race for this podcast um, it's another Montoya related memory because this came after the absolute low point of his rookie season where he had smashed up a lot of cars and got in some scraps and he didn't really star in this race but he was sensible and there were a few laps where he was sort of closing on Schumacher towards the end and I thought as a Montoya fan at the time oh thank goodness he's just looking a bit more settled now this might actually be all right after a month when i thought oh this is going to get a little bit zanardi good mention of our recent alex zanardi episode there as well uh, ed are you going left field or obvious for us this time it's kind of obvious, but with a left field twist, I, I hope, in that obviously it's well remembered that Schumacher had that failure on a reconnaissance lap while in the T car and he had to get back to the pits. And I, at the time, remember being delighted by the fact that it was a BMW motorbike he got a lift back on with a big badge on the side because obviously BMW Williams was the one of the big rivals for Ferrari. So it was an amusing assist and a promotional win for BMW, you could say. And although my knowledge of two-wheeled machinery is dire, because of that, it's always stuck in my mind that it was called a BMW C1. It was one of those weird, I think it was a scooter technically, with a kind of roof attempt yeah, on it, it bizarre. which is all very uh, strange. But apparently it was produced for BMW by an Italian company called Batone. So perhaps there was a little bit of sympathy for Ferrari there from the uh, Italian origins of the bike. I'm glad you've given that uh, incident such a run out there because uh, we had a few of those from our listeners as well, but I've not, it's not actually made it into the script. So we're giving it some love at the beginning. Let's hear some memories from our audience. Uh, we put this one out in our community on X. If you've not joined us over there yet, look for the link in the description of this episode to get involved. Lots of you mentioned Ralph Schumacher crossing the white line on the pit exit. So let's do those first. We had that from uh, Black Mask, Stephen Gate, Richard Royal, Thomas Knights, Jack Poston and Matt Perry, among many others. 
On the same subject, Alex Morris said it never seemed to be an issue until Ferrari picked up on it. And Rishi says this race was the start of it really being enforced. Uh, as Ed mentioned, KX Velocity remembers uh, Michael Schumacher's car breaking down on a reconnaissance, reconnaissance lap. Reconnaissance lap. There we go. Um, and him having to get that scooter back to the pits, which, like Ed, Andrew Sillett enjoyed it being a BMW scooter. On the same subject, Paul Lucas says this showed how lucky Schumacher was because his car rarely broke down. And when it did, it wasn't during the race. Lewis Delgano chose Michael's start chop on Ralph, which Lewis called rather savage. And Chris United 93 also mentioned the lack of brotherly love at the start. Lastly, quite a few of you mentioned this being the last race on this layout of the Nürburgring before it was changed for 2002. We had that from Joe, uh, Russ Dugman, Stuart Coulter, and Chris Parrott says, this was my favourite track on Grand Prix 4, which is based on this season. Now, I agree with that. Uh, I loved Grand Prix 4, and until very recently, I still had a working copy of it. Uh, and there was something about this track uh, in, in this layout that just flowed really well made it a good one to kind of jump in and drive if you didn't have very long now remember if you'd like to get early access to every new episode of bring back v10s and listen ad free plus get a whole range of bonus content from us once the series is over then check out the race members club it only costs 24.99 for a year and there are loads of other benefits from the race as well but for me, the main thing you're going to want to check out is our exclusive mini-series we have planned where we're going to look back at every race individually from a classic F1 season once Series 9 is over. You'll hear plenty of Ed and Matt on those episodes as well. Thank you to everyone who's been firing in your questions for the end of the series to bring back V10s at thehyphenrace.com. As usual, we're going to end up with far too many, but that's why we love you all. And... For our members, we will do more than one bonus episode taking questions from you. At the end of the last series, we did a two-hour members' questions special. So rather than expand that to, I don't know, three hours plus this time, as there are so many more of you now, we're going to break it down and do multiple shorter episodes for our members, basically so we can get more of your questions in. But that's enough plugs. Uh, let's hop in our time machine all the way back to 2001. A big talking point heading into the weekend was that Mika Hakkinen rejected any suggestion that he should be prepared to move over to help teammate David Coulthard's title challenge against Michael Schumacher. Two rough weekends in Monaco and Canada had dropped DC from four points back to 18 points behind Schumacher, but Hakkinen was having a miserable season with just eight points from the first eight races. So naturally, the question was being asked about if he would support Coulthard over the rest of the season. But Hakkinen said he was paid to win races, and that's what McLaren expected him to do. He said he saw no reason why he couldn't win races, and he was still focused on the World Championship, because, in his words, maybe four races from now, things could be completely different. Coulthard pointed out that he'd helped Hakkinen in the past, but only ever once he'd been mathematically out of contention. And DC's good friend Jacques Villeneuve said it was about time Hakkinen returned the favour. Coulthard acknowledged this briefly in his book, saying he'd heard the whispers about if Hakkinen should support him, but it was quickly dismissed inside McLaren. Ed, quite simply, should Hakkinen have been more willing to get behind DC at this point? 
Well, he should be willing if the team had asked him to, but I guess the big question is whether the team wanted to. Frankly, he's living in a fantasy world at the time if he thought that uh, he was still a championship threat because he was just <laughs> yes. too far behind at this stage. But to be honest, what he says is what any driver would. They're there to win races. And Hackenden, I don't think, had beaten Coulthard in any of the eight races before that, albeit with occasional bits of bad luck. Spain, last lap failure being the, uh, uh, the, the obvious one. So, yeah, I, I think... Had he been told to explicitly, he would have done so because I think he'd have known he wasn't really in a position to uh, uh, to fight for the championship. Well, it might have been interesting had it been a race like Silverstone or Indy because he's spoken to us before about how important those two Grand Prix wins were to him at those specific venues. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange one. Uh, I'm sure it would have been logical to order him. And I think if they'd asked in a race situation and made it clear he would be doing it, he would have uh, agreed to do it. And of course, he did t- He did show he was willing to do it at the end of the season by incredibly generously handing that third place at Suzuka to uh, David Coulthard <laughs> as a thank you right at the end, which I'm sure DC's tremendously appreciative of. What a, what a generous parting gift that one was. I'd forgotten he did that. I just think what a what a ridiculous question to be asking him in the first place at this point in the season. Like it's one of those kind of storylines where people get obsessed with who's going to obey team orders or not team orders. When actually at that time, Hakkinen's main priority had to just be get fast enough to be more useful to himself, McLaren, or Coulthard on on any occasion. It was yeah, it was a very hypothetical one. I do wonder if that Suzuka gift was just so he could get out of the press conference, to be honest. <laughs> That's what uh, Coulthard suspects. DC has mentioned that before. I think he maybe even said that Hakkinen said that to him afterwards. Like Mika just wanted to go home, I think, and stop being an F1 driver. So, yeah, it was the, uh, the tokenist of token gestures. Anyway, with Hakkinen barely contributing and Coulthard having a rough couple of races, McLaren was going through a difficult patch and things didn't really get any better at the Nürburgring where they'd uh, be clearly third best behind Ferrari and Williams. McLaren boss Ron Dennis said the Adrian Newey Jaguar saga, which we've of course covered in the past, had upset the balance of the team. Ron said to have consistent results, you have to have harmony and that McLaren was a little off balance after nearly losing its technical genius. However, he felt McLaren just needed to calm things down because a lot of its problems were coming from trying too hard. We won't dwell on the Newey Jaguar stuff too much as we've already done it in great detail before, but on McLaren's car problems, Newey admitted if the problem was simple, uh, we would have worked it out. And uh, he said his focus was on trying to work out why McLaren's car was pretty good in the races, but not fast enough in qualifying, which was putting the drivers on the back foot. Matt, uh, Ed had the chance to comment on this in the Newey episode we did, so you can have it this time. Do you think the Newey saga could really be blamed for McLaren seemingly losing its way here in 2001? Absolutely not. Just complete and utter nonsense. With nonsense that gained surprising traction at the time. It was surprising to me anyway, looking looking back at it. But there were so many reasons why McLaren was in a bit of a mess relatively at that point. You know, it's Mercedes had only upgraded rather than replacing the engine. BMW had raised the game engine-wise. Mercedes had suffered a bit from beryllium being banned. There'd been McLaren and Mercedes had worked on a, on a transmission project for 2001 that ended up being banned. The front wing design hadn't really worked with a slight aero rules tweak, and it had an effect on the balance that wasn't great for Hakkinen's driving style in particular. Hakkinen was rattled from how hard 2000 had been. He was he was you know wilting during 2000 and really carried that into 2001. Then had a shunt 
caused by a suspension failure that really, really, really rattled him. And then the car's launch control just again and again and again didn't work and both cars kept being left on the grid. That is not because Adrian Newey flirted with going to Jaguar and there was a bit of a controversy about it. I'm sure that was a great talking point within the team. I'm sure, I think it was Coulthard at some point in 2001 suggested it might have an effect on the following year's development if Newey had been a bit distracted, but not in the no, that that is not what is causing the car to be left on the grid like five times out of seven at one point mid-season. And for Ron Dennis to say that, given that the reason Newey was flirting with leaving McLaren after just four years was the way, in, in Newey's own words, the way Ron Dennis was making him feel and was running the place, very, very rich for Ron to talk about a lack of harmony being caused by Newey there. Just complete deflection. McLaren's struggles had brought Williams into the conversation at the front of the field, with Ralph Schumacher winning two of the first eight races, including the most recent race in Canada. Michael Schumacher was full of praise for his brother and Williams, saying just wait until that car is more reliable, then it will be very dangerous. Ferrari's Ross Braun said Williams being on Michelin tyres made things tricky, as Ferrari and McLaren were on Bridgestones, so it was tough for Ferrari to defend against two different scenarios. And Williams chief designer Gavin Fisher felt that Williams' progress had been accelerated because Ferrari and McLaren hadn't made as much progress from 2000 to 2001 and they were not as strong as they should be. Ed, picking up on that final point there, do you think that was the case here? Were Williams perhaps being flattered by the other big teams not kicking on from 2000? I think they maybe thought they were because there were a few factors they hadn't taken into account. Obviously, Matt's talked about why McLaren was a bit uh, below form. Obviously, Ferrari took a bit of a hit in terms of downforce for for the top end of the downforce range because of the front and rear wing changes. It was about half a season before they got back to where they were on downforce levels. But that's a, a rules thing that impacted everyone to a greater or lesser extent. And as is often the case, the ones right at the front take a bigger hit. So I think perhaps... Williams underestimated that that would create a little bit of a step back for those two as they worked forward. But it was strange because Williams at this point, they'd obviously not won for the previous, what, three seasons. And they were trying to manage expectations as well because they thought this was going to be a year where they won a few races. And then suddenly, because the car was so quick, albeit not that often getting to the chequered flag, I think they'd only had, what, four finishes in the first eight races off the top of my head. So it wasn't great from that perspective but it was quick and they were maybe slightly taken aback by that they perhaps also underestimated just how much they were getting from the engine as well which was 30 maybe 40 brake horsepower peak power more than anyone else at this stage which Gary Anderson always says about a tenth of a second a lap is a good rule of thumb for 10 brake horsepower so that adds up as well and there's all those other factors like the Michelin tyres etc they work quite well in the higher temperatures so that was an offset they had from uh, from the other uh, other top teams so there was a little bit of distortion in the picture there, but I think overall it's just trying to dampen down a bit the expectations and the the hopes, although ironically they probably overestimated where they were with the car because of those rule changes knocking back the others because they had a strong engine and a decent car rather than being a mega car and a, a, a mega engine, if you see what I mean. And that was the source of a lot of the friction over the years that followed as well with BMW <laughs> and, uh, and Williams. So I think... That was an honest statement, but I think it's a bit of a misinterpretation of the overall situation they were in and just showed what, again, they got from the engine as well, insofar as they were being held back by having the old uh, Supertech engine and then 
the first learning year for BMW in 2000 when they were working their way along. They was that sort of pushed them back into into the game a bit more. We'll stick with Williams as during the Nürburgring weekend, the team announced a contract extension for Ralph, signing him up until the end of 2004. Both Ralph and Frank Williams talked about fighting for the world title in 2002 and Frank called it a very sound decision, which we are confident will be proven to be correct time and again in the future. BMW's Gerhard Berger called it a logical move for both sides, saying that Ralph had shown he could compete with his brother and that's all we need. Patrick Head said similar things, saying he expected to see a lot of the Schumacher brothers competing with each other over the coming years. He also compared Ralph's transformation over the winter of 2000 to 01 to what Damon Hill did from 95 to 96, saying Ralph was thinking more clearly and more mature in the way he understands problems. Matt, this was a big money deal and a big commitment from Williams. Was the summer of 2001, when Ralph gets that contract, perhaps the highest his stock ever was in F1? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think it's the best he was driving, but it, it was it was those few months and maybe about a fortnight in 2003 when people really zoomed in on Ralph Schumacher looking like a complete driver. But the trouble was, I've never been the biggest of Ralph Schumacher fans, but I wouldn't deny he was capable of really, really strong performances. But they tended to come in sort of fits and starts, and he'd look like he could beat his brother in a straight fight for a couple of races and then just disappear again afterwards. Um, you know, at 2001, this Williams, like Ed said, maybe not the best, certainly not the best car on the grid, but it had some factors around it that could give it an advantage. The, you know, the horsepower of the BMW being so strong, being the best car on Michelin's on the, on the day when it was a Michelin day. Chuck those in. Ralph could really control the race very impressively. I remember his, his win at Imola and just thinking the, the speed he was getting and the composure with which he was leading that race was, was superb. But I was there that day. Oh, well, did you think the same? Uh, not particularly. Um, <laughs> I was mainly amused that uh, when Michael Schumacher retired from that race, uh, I was on the banks at Tosa, which is like Tofosi Central. And um, they all left when Michael retired, even though Barrichello was the one chasing Ralph for the win. <laughs> it was one of those days, though, that thinking of Imola again, where you, you assumed Ralph was running lighter than everybody else, but he wasn't. And that tends to be the case with the races he'd dominate. He'd look so good, you'd wonder where he was for the other three quarters of the season when, when, that, when that wasn't happening. I think the best he actually drove in F1 was 1999, when the Williams wasn't that great and he was achieving some great things and it should have won at Nürburgring morally in that year. He was superb in that race. So in terms of value, yes, this was the couple of weeks when F1 thought Ralph was greater than it would at any other point. But I think he did drive better than this at other points in his career. I think it's worth noting as well the external factors in the market as well, because this was a point where there weren't a vast number of top drivers around. Raikkonen and Alonso had made their appearance, but they were yet to be kind of catapulted into that strata. So Ralph was one of a few kind of drivers who were seen in that that area. So obviously your market value is based on your performances and also who else is around so inevitably it meant that by the time he was doing his next deal he was shuffled a little bit down the priority order should we say which is one of the reasons why he ended up going to toyota do you like formula one but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on then we have the podcast for you introducing the race f1 briefing the podcast that brings you the latest f1 headlines in 15 minutes or less 
With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Michael Schumacher took the opportunity to declare that Ralph was capable of being a world champion one day, and he managed to bundle that in with a dig at Ralph's teammate Juan Pablo Montoya as well. Michael said that Ralph had proven himself to be faster in qualifying and race trim, and Montoya never had a chance against Ralph in a race. Uh, Michael added, if you ask me who's going to bury me one day, I'd say Ralph, not Montoya. Now, before I inevitably let Montoya fan Matt come in here, uh, Ed, do you think Michael really believed that? Well, he could be completely cynical and say it was an easy get-out-of-jail-free card for him, wasn't it, to say, yeah, my brother's the one who's going to topple me. Maybe brotherly love played its part. And obviously, Michael did work a lot with Ralph over the years, particularly before F1, so that they were close in that regard. And I do think there was some truth in it in that I think there was a perception in the wider world that Montoya was was the, the sort of the next big thing in this this little window having made a big impact and Ralph was just a bit of a more rubbish Schumacher who was just there because of his name which I think is a, was a very distorted view and if you look at Montoya and Schumacher I think the truth in what Michael's saying there is that the way Ralph tried to drive the technique he had that very attacking in corner entry phase overlapping the brake and just just catch, carrying a bit of break in, but balancing it up very well in terms of the, the the lateral load could make you incredibly fast in these cars. Montoya was a little bit more of a of an imprecise driver, should we say, very quick. But generally, Ralph, when he was at his best, was quick, could be quicker than Montoya. And if you look at their years together at Williams, Schumacher, I think, had mildly the marginally the, the better qualifying uh, records. So I think probably when he looked at Ralph, he saw a driver who had the speed. Whereas Montoya, I think, had the the wheel-to-wheel element, that that racecraft and that battling quality that a couple of times had, had caused some problems for Michael Schumacher, most famously, into Lagos. But I suspect he looked at Montoya and thought, you're a long way off being refined enough to be a big problem for me. Having said all that, while that's an argument for him thinking Ralph was better than Montoya, who are the two obvious comparison points, we'll leave Hackenden out, out of it. He obviously didn't want to go there because he knew how quick Mika firing on all cylinders as he wasn't in this year could be but I don't think he thought Ralph would bury him certainly (laughs) because he knew as one of the big incidents in this race said that Ralph was probably a little bit more soft in terms of his ruthlessness in in battle very good racer in many ways but yeah I, I think Michael probably deep down knew he had his measure so it's a nice easy thing to for him to say that he's the one who's going to bury him and I think there's some some truth in I don't think it would have been wrong at this stage to say that Ralph was ahead of some of the other threats to him. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I don't. Th- I, I don't think Michael seriously believed that. Very kind thing to say to Ralph. Very handy put down for Montoya. I do think, even as a Montoya fan, even by this stage, like four months into Montoya's F1 racing career, Schumacher could probably look at Montoya and go, "I think he's going to be too sketchy to actually be a long-term proper problem." You know, he's going to annoy me. He might beat me to a title or two, but this is not a hacking in 
situation where this guy's going to really threaten to topple me. I bet, though, I th- bet Schumacher was aware enough to be looking at what Fernando Alonso and Kimi Raikkonen were doing that season and just having a bit of an eye on them already at that point and thinking, oh, this, that could be interesting. Well, famously, Schumacher had run with Raikkonen in one of those early tests, hadn't he, and said, who's the guy in the Sauber? He had, had So he, he, he yeah. clocked him, and yeah, people noticed Alonso in that season, no doubt Michael would have done. As an aside, actually, I was flicking through Autosports, and they had a an average, uh, a top 10 based on their average top 10 ratings, and I, I fired a message at uh, our colleague Mark Hughes and said, oh, did you do the Autosport ratings that year? And he said, oh, yeah, I, th- yeah, I think I did. And the reason it, I thought he'd done it is because Alonso was ranked third in those ratings. He said he got a lot <laughs> of stick for it at the time. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Schumacher would have been aware of Alonso, but... Yeah, Alonso and Raikkonen would have been too far off the radar. And of course, the rule is of a top driver. The last thing you do is talk about the people you really fear, isn't it? Yeah, you find absolutely. someone who's quite good, who you quite like, who you know you've got covered, and you and you talk them up, don't you? That's a much more uh, polite Especially way. Especially if they're, they're your brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if it's not your brother, it's normally your teammate that you feel you've got covered, isn't it? Just to, Just say something nice about the other guy in the same car. We did talk about Mark's uh, ratings of Alonso when we did Alonso 2001 many moons ago and i think you I, I seem to remember you could tell that mark's glad he doesn't do the driver ratings anymore um that's it that's ed's problem these days now ralph's new deal raised questions about jensen button's future button had been loaned out by williams to benetton to make room for montoya's arrival in 2001 but jensen was having a miserable time of things in a poor car his average grid position from the first eight races was 19th and he'd qualified 20th or lower in a field of 22, I think, five times. Teammate Giancarlo Fisichella's average was only two places higher in 17th, but he'd stuck the car 10th on the grid in Monaco and picked up a fortunate point in Brazil. Button said at the time, uh, during this Nürburgring weekend, that he was stumped, saying he couldn't find what he wanted from the car, adding, I don't know what's happening, it's really difficult to know what the problem is. Benetton's Pat Simmons tried to play down Button's problems, saying it was just down to Fisichella having the advantage of continuity because he'd been there a few years. Williams was supportive too. Patrick Head said Button's performances in the latter part of 2000 were convincing enough that Williams had no doubt about his talent, while Frank Williams said he still believed Button was a future world champion, and Frank was right, and that it was very possible Button could return to Williams in 2003 so presumably that would have been alongside Ralph because Ralph's got his contract until 2004 but Matt at this stage did it feel like Button had a clear route back to Williams at some point yeah definitely as much as the rest of the world was going oh we we were wrong about Button he is rubbish after all you you knew that Williams wouldn't be thinking that way because they'd been so impressive in their car in 2000 now the the fall from grace in 2001 was pretty extreme but even then it felt obvious that was a bit of this guy was yeah 2021 had had such a short car racing career let alone F1 career had had all that spotlight all that British press interest in him in 2000 suddenly he's in an absolutely abysmal car in the team in transition I, you know, it wasn't going to be easy to cope with and that was going to show in his driving. Uh, Fisichella, I know the grid average wasn't too far apart, but the speed difference between them was enormous at some points this year. Fisichella was achieving some little under-the-radar miracles in that car and just making Button look hopeless in comparison. 
but in retrospect that just showed you how good Fisichella could be in adversity sometimes it was almost like the worst car you gave him the more impressive he looked relatively and when he get, got in good cars it just wasn't wasn't there in the same way whereas when Button did get some big chances he he really he really ran with them so you could yeah you can understand Williams having faith and I'm sure at the time I saw that quote and was like no that would be at Montoya's expense no way because I also assumed that Williams wouldn't be losing faith in Montoya just because he'd hit quite a few walls in the in the previous month and you could just see Williams building into another whoops we've got too many drivers for our cars situation there but yeah they weren't going to lose faith in Button. There's a comedy moment actually this weekend with the about Montoya and crashing Patrick Head uh, did a, an appearance in the ITV studio on race day. And they asked him about uh, Montoya's record because we'd had Monaco and Canada and Montoya had crashed out of both of them. And at le- for at least one of those shunts, they put it on screen and Patrick went, oh, I'm seeing this accident for the first time. And I was thinking, why did you not see it live? <laughs> <laughs> Looked away in fury. Um, anyway, elsewhere in the driver market, two drivers were confirmed as staying at their teams for 2002. But in fact, neither of them would still be at those teams by then. The first uh, one was Jos Verstappen at Arrows. Uh, Arrows took up their option on him for the following season. Team boss Tom Walkinshaw said Max's dad had shown uh, he was one of the best racers on the grid flag to flag and that Jos had matured a lot since the middle of 2000, working on his fitness and qualifying. Jos said he was disappointed that Arrows hadn't kicked on from what he felt was a promising 2000 because the team got its development wrong and its new car wasn't as good as hoped. But he said he was happy at Arrows and he felt he had done good things for the team, which Walkinshaw was pleased with. Verstappen didn't end up racing for Arrows in 2002 and this turned into a messy legal case that we'll probably cover another time. But looking at the period where they were together, Ed, were Verstappen and Arrows a good fit? Yeah, I thought they were. They both had limited options ultimately so that made Jos Verstappen a classic more struggling team option because he had experience he could be very quick decent racer but also limitations so if you look at his arrow season he wasn't great at maximizing the car in qualifying sometimes overdrive wasn't brilliant at getting the the best out of the fresh Bridgestone rubber and actually it might come as a surprise to people Enrique Bernaldi had the better qualifying record that year he Started ahead 10 out of 17 times. But then Bernaldi only spent 70 racing laps all season ahead of Verstappen. So that tells you a little bit about... Exactly, I enjoyed that one. But it it tells you a bit about the kind of first laps that Verstappen was having. So he got this reputation as this great charger. That said, Verstappen was a bit flattered by that because he'd underperformed in qualifying. The Arrows A22, if you're being generous, was very error-efficient. If you're being a bit more realistic, it was light of downforce. They'd also gone for a quite small fuel tank the rationale being that the tyre wall would drive people into softer, higher deg tyres and everyone would be making many stops, but that didn't prove to be the case. But it basically meant Arrows always had to start on what was a fairly low fuel load compared to some of those around them. So it all meant that often Verstappen could go forward and then not hold on to that early on. But yeah, I think he, he was a good servant for the team. If you're Arrows, you don't get somebody brilliant necessarily because they go to the top teams you might hit upon an inexperienced driver in Alonso or someone like that but I think Verstappen was a pretty decent option for them and of course they paired him with Bernaldi who had the Red Bull money so yeah I think it was absolutely fine it was a a limited driver with an upside driving for a a limited team with a, a hoped for potential upside let's put it that way. 
Now, amusingly, it was the driver who ended up replacing Verstappen at Arrows, Heinz-Held Frentzen, who was the other man supposedly confirmed at his existing team for 2002. Eddie Jordan dismissed media speculation that Frentzen could lose his drive at the end of 2001, saying he had a contract for 2002 already. And Frentzen said while he didn't want to go into details of his contract, both sides were working hard for greater successes in the future. However, we were only a couple of races away from Frentzen being sacked mid-season by Jordan, uh, which was even worse than what happened to Verstappen at Arrows. Frentzen talked about his 2001 struggles on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast last year, and he said, After things felt good at the first race in Australia, something must have happened after that, because nothing ever felt the same again. And he said to this day, he still has no idea why that was. We'll handle his sacking properly another time. But uh, Frentzen said it was a little bit anticipated because Eddie Jordan was getting more strange each race towards me. That's a very Heinz held sentence, isn't it? Um, so I suspect that what was going on here was that they were both claiming everything would be fine for 2002 while things weren't quite so good behind the scenes. But looking at this more widely, Matt, were you surprised at how... The French and Jordan magic that almost took them to the title in 1999 was just never rediscovered. By 2001, not really, because I think you, you got about four races into 2000 and realised that was over. Not in terms of being over as a relationship, but in terms of that 99 magic was was gone and it kind of put Frentzen into context of being a driver who was ca genuinely capable of really great impressive things but only in a very limited set of circumstances when everything was right for him and just put him in the right mood to maybe probably have the belief more than anything else that he could be this great driver and you know we, we talked about 99 a suitably large amount on this podcast over the series and how yeah, he started that season with no expectation and sacked by Williams alongside Hill with everyone looking at Hill as uh, as Demi Hill as Jordan's big hope for 99. And Frentzen just got on with the car. Hill struggled. Things started going his way. It was a year when the big teams were making a mess of things and Jordan was just at the right level of resources to take advantage. It just fell towards Frentzen and he kind of rose to that opportunity and was just absolutely amazing. And then you get into 2000 and... A lot of those bigger teams have got themselves together. There's more manufacturers. Jordan's looking more like an underfunded independent overstretching itself to keep up again. And that sort of decline that sets in early in 2000 is basically Jordan's path in F1 from then onwards. It's taken another step in 2001. The idea of it being a title contender seems crazy by this point, only about 18 months on from when it actually was. And you can see Frentzen's just not where he was confidence-wise, didn't understand why things have gone wrong. So by this point, I think any hope anybody had of Frentzen winning another Grand Prix, turning out to be a title contender again, was long gone. I certainly didn't see him getting sacked a month or so later. That was totally out of the blue. But it did prove that 99 was exactly as you described in that question, Glenn. It was some magic, and that magic was, was not going to last. We'll bounce back to Arrows quickly, as they were in the news for other reasons here as well. Firstly, Walkinshaw aggressively denied rumours that the team's major shareholder, Morgan Grenfell, was in talks with Red Bull about selling the team, calling those stories complete rubbish and a nuisance because he'd had talks with Morgan Grenfell and said they said they were not interested in selling. 
Walkinshaw was less forthcoming about reports that Arrows was ditching Asia Tech engines for Cosworth for 2002, but fortunately Nicky Lauder was involved on the other side of that deal for Ford, so as usual he just came straight out with it and uh, <laughs> said it was happening and reckoned the deal would be concluded within three weeks. Lauder thought it would be good for Cosworth to supply another team beyond Jaguar, and Jos Verstappen was looking forward to it as well, another straight talker, uh, saying it would be fantastic to have an engine that would be developed and that the, the team wouldn't have anyone to blame then. It would be up to them to produce quick cars. Ed, remarkably, we're only about a year away from Arrows going out of business. But at this stage, did its future actually look quite solid? I think from a distance, it did. They had that orange sponsorship. That was a proper deal. It meant the cars looked great, and it meant everybody could do the the future's bright, the future's orange puns, as was the advertising. Yeah. One of many for... sponsors. They had a lot of sponsors at this point. Well, they did, but not as many as they should have had, which we'll get <laughs> on in, in a second. But obviously, that they had other good things. The Asia Tech deal was was free. It was a works deal, if you want to call it that. Obviously, they were the ex-Persia engines. They were underdeveloped. The team had just over three hundred people. They kept talking about investment in facilities and equipment and that Cosworth deal was for a work spec engine even though uh, I think the deal required them paying for it and then on top of that you had Tom Walkinshaw had a lot of credit didn't he because of his touring car and sports car successes with TWR and this was TWR F1 really it was still seen as that but the, the trouble is he didn't have so much credit financially there were warning signs going on they'd lost a, a Coral Eurobet deal that fell apart and there was a subsequent legal case that was all about the what point they could pull out of it and that that went on for a while they had cello sponsorship that pulled out as well because they were having cash flow problems and that kind of thing so that meant there was quite a big hole in the in the finances and there was talk about selling that that bedford wind tunnel the one that red bull subsequently acquired and, and still use to this day and there, well, there was talk of deals for red bull to use it and there was potential of that being tied to the the cosworth engine deal as as well a lot of this financial stuff wasn't public, but there was a lot going on. And there was agitation with Morgan Grenfell, massively so, because there were legal cases subsequently with that, with Morgan Grenfell annoyed at there was some financial restructuring that was going through at this point that Walkinshaw forced through that they didn't want to happen because they felt it devalued their ownership. Walkinshaw was having to put in some of his own money, certainly by a few months later, if not already at this time, just to keep things ticking over. So superficially it looked all right and quite tidy but it was on such thin ice and you didn't have to look too hard to see some of those cracks but yeah I think because Arrows have been away have been around for so long and because Walkinshaw had such a big reputation there was kind of a belief it would all sort itself out but but no it was just it was a team that was already at this point on a trajectory to oblivion it's just it wasn't perhaps publicly so it seemed to have stabilized somewhat Let's go back to the driver market and right at the back of the grid, uh, even behind Jensen Button most of the time, as there was increasing speculation that Malaysian Alex Jung was going to replace Tarso Marquez at Minardi, bringing with him considerable backing from his home country. Marquez was surprisingly relaxed about this, telling the F1 Digital pit reporters during the Nürburgring weekend that he'd heard the rumours and while he had a contract to the end of the season, if Minardi could find a driver that could bring funding to the team and pay Marquez off, uh, he said they probably should do it because they need the money. Matt, it's rare to find an excuse to talk about Minardi in 2001 that isn't about Fernando Alonso. Uh, are you as impressed as I am by Marquez's attitude towards this? 
Yeah, bless Tarso Marquez. So I, occasionally on Bring Back V10s, it turns out that I remember I had a massive affection for a driver based on like one quick lap once that I then hung on to for years as, as, as a teenager in my early 20s. Um, I thought Marquez looked fantastic when he replaced Giancarlo Fisichella at Minardi for two races early in 96 after Taki Inouye's money fell through and the two of them were sharing a drive. Qualified really well. Uh, well, he out-qualified Pedro Lamy both times. I was like, this guy's a star. He was very young. He was... I think he had just turned 20. He hadn't got tons of European experience. He'd done two years in Formula 3000. He had been a race winner, but he was, he was doing well for someone relatively inexperienced. And I did, I did think for a while, actually, if someone takes this guy seriously and gives him a bit of bit of a run, he could be genuinely quite good. He did crash out of both those 96 races in quite clumsy ways, though. So, you know, quite a rough diamond if he was in any way a diamond. Uh, but considering his Minardi was often made of Lego relatively during 2001 compared to Alonso's because of the team's financial position, I thought he was very pragmatic to be there in, and not moan as long as long as he was, really. Shame his um, American career didn't work out better. He did have a run with Penske, but it was with Penske when they were at their absolute worst and they didn't really make much of some later chances with Dale Coyne. But yeah, I've got a lot of fondness for Marquez, and, and that quote doesn't diminish it at all. He also wasn't in a great position to shout the odds because Stoddart later claimed that he'd bought almost no money for that drive. Marquez had paid about $15,000, something like that, for it. And I think Marquez was being paid as well. Wow. So uh, Mar- Marquez was basically in that glad-to-be-here category. He was probably expecting that drive to vanish really early in the season. So I think, yeah, his his sanguine attitude was probably, well, it's a massive bonus I've got this far, so uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll take it. So he was in a weird situation, uh, Marquez, in that regard. And, uh, yeah, probably couldn't... Uh, couldn't afford to be too uh, too shouty about it, and uh, yeah, did a nice little professional job for the team in uh, unpromising circumstances. <laughs> I love the idea of him bringing basically no money and still being like, "Well, if you want me to leave, you can pay me off." <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about a couple of new pieces of technology that were being primed for introduction in F1 next. Uh, The first was a hands device, the head and neck safety kit that we're also used to seeing every driver wearing today. It hadn't quite come into F1 by 2001 and driver feedback was mixed after trying it during testing. Michael Schumacher supported the idea of improving driver safety by bringing it in, but he said it was still a bit far away from being ready because it needed to be adjusted to fit every driver properly. He said it had taken a big effort to get it adapted and you can't take one hands and give it to 22 drivers. It won't fit. Mick Hakkinen agreed that it needed to be personalised for each driver, but he felt he was one of the best people to comment on its introduction because of the crash that nearly killed him in Adelaide in 1995. And he said it's not very pleasant to wear, but it is definitely a good thing. Jacques Villeneuve said... It was easier to implement it quickly for oval racing where the drivers had to move their heads less. And he suggested getting F3000 drivers to use it first so the problems could be sorted before giving it to us. Here you go, test monkeys. Um, We'll give the final word on this, beyond our own, of course, uh, to FIA President Max Mosley, who said the FIA would only make it compulsory in F1 when all the drivers and teams are happy with it and when F1 doctor Sid Watkins gave a 100% OK. Ed, uh, I'm pretty sure you've used a hands device back in your promising racing career. Can you sympathise with the drivers on the importance of getting the comfort levels right before this was brought in? 
Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, not so much a, a promising career, I'd say. But yeah, I did use the hands uh, a fair bit. I had to uh, to use it for a, a sports car outing and then used it regularly after that. And it, it's, it's, it's really strange when you first use it because even for much more basic cars, you had to make sure you sort of put it on in exactly the right way. Otherwise, you'd get it pinching your neck or it could be uncomfortable. There were Even for the off-the-shelf ones, there were different angles of, of hands for it, depending on the seating position. I, I used to use it as well in my Ginetta G20, which was an odd seating position given anyone who's seen a Ginetta G20, which is a small, lightweight sports car, and anyone who's seen me, you can imagine the uh, <laughs> the the ungainly seating position I had to achieve in it. So, Well, shall we point out that you didn't have a seat? Yeah, there was no space for a seat. There was a, you there was a belted to the floor there, of the car. There was, t- what I there was a tiny like hint of a seat just to avoid losing feeling in my legs. Because the first time, I, <laughs> the first just to digress, the first time I, I raced the genetic, it was very embarrassing. It was at Castle Coombe. Who knows? Maybe Matt Beer was there. But I've been sat in the. I was there. I've been sat in the. I was there. Oh, okay, was... <laughs> I've been sat in the assembly area, and you you drive out the assembly area and turn hard left onto the start finish straight, and I couldn't pull my foot off the throttle. <laughs> Because I, I'd lost feeling in it, so oh I just <laughs> I just booted it coming out of the assembly area because I couldn't lift my foot, and I did I did like three terrible I did three very slow laps because I could barely move my legs just to qualify, and just came in, and then I kind of made for the races a, a seat using some sort of a few polo shirts just to shape it. But later I had oh, a moulded one. Anyone, I've, I anyway, I've digressed there. But yeah, even for just like a, a fat amateur racing driver, it took a little bit of getting used to and a bit of low-end customization to work out to get the knack to do it to wearing it otherwise you felt very uncomfortable once you did that it kind of felt like part of the the equipment and actually subsequently like you might go out without the hands on it felt a little bit like going out on track without the belts on because you were so used to it but uh yeah i mean it's a great design the hands device it's brilliant in terms of uh you know drivers who would have would have suffered the worst uh the worst consequences of accidents particularly the the, the base of the skull fractures is very good for pre- preventing those so it's it's great in that regard but particularly for an f1 car with the ridiculous seating position in an f1 car how tight everything is i can absolutely get why drivers were deeply uh deeply wary about it i'm not entirely sure whether it's entirely fair to uh declare that f3000 drivers had to sort it out perhaps he, no yeah jack villeneuve was trying to find some work for his mate patrick lemarie at that time i think it was, <laughs> was in f3000 but uh yeah it, it's it was quite a big deal it's so much as you say part of the the clothing now that it's a bit of a surprise but there was legitimate pushback to it because of that and indeed when it came in i think it was 2003 wasn't it It was mandated and i know justin wilson had some problems with it and rubens barrack a few drivers did have difficulties so uh so yeah i imagine trying to they would probably had to adapt the way their cockpits were, were laid out the way they were sitting so hugely difficult thing to do for f1 drivers so i don't think they were being excessively reactionary by pushing back at this stage but they thought look we've got to be able to drive the car and not not suffer either from discomfort or nerve pinching or all these sorts of things that that could have happened of all of your digressions over nine nearly nine series now ed that one might be the best (laughs) was that the luther blissett weekend uh yeah it would have been yeah well yeah luther blissett was also there were two guest drivers me and uh former england international footballer luther blissett we uh we were driving around status we were driving around in my seat road car the day before um to uh to learn the track and uh 
come up with some uh, sneaky uh, sneaky overtaking tips and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, it was it was quite fun. That was a one off guest appearance, but of course, yeah, looping it in front of the media center at Castle Coombe because you can't lift your foot off the throttle was uh, was extremely <laughs> comedy and uh, tremendously embarrassing. And I don't doubt it delighted everybody and rightly so. Yeah, I should stress that I wasn't there covering your exploits in a Janetta. It was a British F3 weekend. Um, probably my first full-time one as a journalist, maybe. Um, but yeah, I do remember I do remember you being in that car. Uh, I've driven with a hands device uh, once as well uh, in a Formula BMW um, back in my own time, pretending to want to be, be a wannabe racing driver. And I had the same problem. The first one I put on, it like it pushed my head really far forward. And I was sort of in the car going, um, I, I can't drive like this. I'm looking down in my lap. And they had to get me one that was a different shape uh, and then it was okay. But you're right about it, it just feeling normal now. Like if you see a driver, say, wearing their helmet and maybe they're walking down to the Weybridge uh, after qualifying or whatever, an F1 driver today, and they've taken their hands off, the kind of the space between the bottom of their helmet and their shoulders looks bare, doesn't it? It looks like something's missing. It's crazy. You know, we've had this for pretty much 20 years, well, 20 years now. So as we know, the hands device came in eventually but something that didn't and was being tested at this time now this has almost made it into a few 2001 episodes but has never quite made the cut for the script brake lights for f1 cars they'd also been tried out in testing and driver feedback was mixed uh it wasn't going to be a simple case of the light being triggered by the brake pedal Given how much uh, F1 cars can be slowed down by drag just from lifting off the throttle, it would have been triggered once uh, enough of a a deceleration G-force was detected. The Schumacher brothers were in favour. Michael said there are no reasons why we should not have them, calling it simple. And Ralph said he thought the test had gone well. And he also thought it could help racing as you could learn if a driver you were chasing was braking early anywhere. Montoya and Villeneuve disagreed. Uh, Montoya said F1 didn't need brake lights and he was worried that drivers could dab the pedal to put a chasing driver off, which Villeneuve chimed in on as well, saying he thought that made them dangerous to bring in. Montoya also countered Ralph's overtaking suggestion, saying that if you were close enough to overtake someone, you're already alongside them before they hit the brakes, so it would make no difference. Matt, what do you think? Would brake lights have been a good addition to F1 cars? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't get this at all. I didn't get this at the time. I, I, I've got a lot of respect for F1 drivers' reactions and ability to take in a scenario, and I couldn't see what brake lights could add to that beyond the impression they notice of this other car decelerating very rapidly. Surely in a racing situation, you're aware enough that you go, oh, that car's slowing down. I should overtake it in that split second. What was a light going to do? That like, Yeah, just no. <laughs> Why do that? Good answer. Uh, let's talk uh, IndyCar racing for a bit, which will delight Matt. Uh, yes. Kart as America's top series was known by this point. Firstly, uh, Kart star and former Montoya rival Dario Franchitti hit back at comments from Jacques Villeneuve and Eddie Irvine, which were rather dismissive of the US series. In a fallout with Montoya at the previous race in Canada, Villeneuve had said Kart wasn't a good training ground for F1 drivers, amusing given that's where he came from in the mid-90s, and Irvine said Kart was more about bullying cars than driving with skill and finesse. Uh, Dario responded in Autosport saying Villeneuve's comments were not valid, 
and that both drivers uh, on the F1 side were just stirring it up. Franchitti happened to race for Villeneuve's old team, Team Green, so he asked his boss Barry Green is Kart, uh, if Kart was more competitive in 2001 compared to when Villeneuve won the title in 1995, and Barry Green told him it was a hundred times easier back when Villeneuve was there. And Dario said Irvine's comments were quite amusing from a guy who has never driven one, but is obviously so well informed. Ed, by all means, comment on what Irvine said as well. But let's focus on Villeneuve's comments. And I'll come to you first before Matt gets to go down a massive rabbit hole. Yes. Was Kart a good training ground for F1? Uh, Yes and no. It depends what you're training. It was a massively competitive series and being anywhere in a massively competitive open wheel series is going to be good to an extent. And Kart was was very strong at that point uh, still. This is before the IRL defections. So, yeah, I mean, the the driving style was different. Yes, it's right to say you, you bullied the cars a bit more. I think saying you didn't drive the car with the cars with the same finesse is fair. Skill is a less not needing skill I don't think was fair I think that's I think it's just different a different driving style and it's still true to an extent to this day I remember having a chat not so long ago with Marcus Ericsson about the the, the driving style that's uh, that can work in IndyCar today so it depends really what you're training and what you're learning and no training ground is perfect one of the big talking points in that season was that f3000 was rubbish and pointless and not a good training ground so it's not like oh cart's terrible f3000's better montoya did both obviously and <laughs> you could point at a montoya and say as we talked about he was a slightly more rough around the edges driver ralph schumacher tried to get things precise and 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 finessed whereas montoya kind of hung on to it a little bit more and that maybe worked more in uh in, better in cart but i don't think it's like montoya was turned into that driver by cart or anything so it's really it's a really weird argument to have and it flares up every now and again with f1 and doesn't it you know they're, they're both slightly different things and cart doesn't exist and indycar doesn't exist and should not exist as a feeder series for formula one it's its own destination thing yes yeah, sometimes people make the move and if you look at the 2001 cart grid there's only one driver i think who went on to then move into formula one uh, off the back of their success there, which was Cristiano D'Amato, who actually did pretty well in F1, despite being dropped after 18 months. So, yeah, it's not the perfect training ground for Formula One, but but what is? And it's just a it's just a weird argument, and it's it, it's really weird to talk about how much less competitive or more competitive it was than compared to six years. It just it just seems a really odd point scoring exercise. I don't really understand what this discourse achieves, other than just people taking stupid pot shots at each other. I think yeah, I think it's reflective of the time. I can't quite imagine this sort of argument happening now, which is more a reflection of kind of IndyCar's decline, unfortunately. But Matt, uh, this is your chance to shine. What about the competitiveness <laughs> argument? Was Kart stronger in two thousand and one or nineteen ninety five when Villeneuve, I must add, won the championship and the Indy five hundred? You like the start of this, Glenn. So taking Barry Green's comment that it was a hundred times easier in '95, I think um, Barry Green and Villeneuve did a hundred times more impressive job to win the '95 title as a single car effort against a very strong Penske team that had dominated the year before, compared to what Team Green did in failing to win the 2001 title as a three-car super team, well established with good kit with Dario Franchitti, Paul Tracy, and Michael Andretti all there. So 
uh, it's a tricky one. I actually think in 95, Cart was still getting stronger and hadn't quite peaked. In, two th- in 2001, it started to decline. Maybe not obviously, because you hadn't had, as Ed describes, the big IRL defections. They were just around the corner. But the gap was getting a little bit bigger between top teams and the very back. A few little teams started disappearing during this year as well. In 95, everyone seemed to be getting better and better, whereas by 2001, things were slipping. I don't think at the absolute top there was that much difference between those two seasons. 2001 was slightly skewed by Ganassi going crazy and signing a completely inexperienced lineup of Bruno Ginkira and Nicholas Manassian as its two drivers for what were potentially the best package in the field because it thought Montoya had come for the F3000 had been good. So he's gone, signed two people who just fought for the F3000 title. That was a massive rabbit hole that really threw Ganassi off. Um, But I looked at the two grids side by side before this episode and strength and depth wise, yeah, 2001 was stronger and that manifested itself when you got a weird race with someone emerging up front from a weird pit stop strategy and strange yellow timing they were far harder to shift because the quality sort of 15th ish on the grid was a lot better than it was in 95 the original irl scooped up a lot of the kind of rubbish from the middle of the cart field and um, raised the quality there for a few years but i don't think i don't think they're really talking and feeling not not really talking about the middle of the field or, or barry green's not talking about middle of the field the argument doesn't really hold water like ed says it's a pointless comparison what had changed was f1 f1 now had narrow track cars groove tires a, a cart was therefore less relevant to f1 than it was when the cars were if not similar uh, a, a lot less alien to each other that was why zanardi struggled it was why part of the reason montoya took a little bit of time to find his feet um yeah it's just like Ed says, a way to insult a driver you're not getting on with at that moment and very laughable coming from Villeneuve giving his background. Interestingly, for someone who'd just taken a swing at US racing, Irvine then claimed to be interested in owning a team in kart in the future once his racing career was finished. He said he would never drive in America, but he said he'd had, he had sort of looked team ownership, uh, probably helped by then Jaguar boss Bobby Rahal, who did have his own team in the US as well. But Irvine said, I love motor racing and I'd love to continue in it in some way. I really enjoy it and I much prefer the decision making processes to being told what to do. I'm very much my own boss. So being the boss of a team is probably ideal for me. Ed, regardless of the series it ended up, it could have ended up happening in, can you imagine Eddie Irvine race team boss? I actually can. I think the knee-jerk reaction that question's almost setting up is to say, oh, he wouldn't be the right character to Larry. But actually, I think he would have been. He's a shrewd character. He understands how things work. He knows what he's good at and not being good at. I think good he'd businessman. Have been, yeah, exactly. I think he'd have been very effective at getting the right people in the right place. Although he says he likes being boss... I don't think he's the kind of person who would have overplayed his hand and tried to micromanage and do everything. I think he's uh, get everyone in the right place, set things up the right way, deal with some of the top-line decisions, but then just let it play out because he is sharp. And then he'd be good for some of the partner elements and the public relations side as well, good for the profile of of the team because he's a very professional operator. Just look at his, his business dealings. He's made all the money in the world on property dealings. And yes, obviously he had the the, the pay he had from years at Ferrari, etc. meant he could start that off and it can become quite self-sustaining. But he he's quite sharp. So I think he genuinely could have done it very well. Where I can't imagine him doing it and why I think it probably never happened is because he's quite shrewd. 
I think he'd have looked at that and, and thought, I think this would be quite fun, but it's not a great business decision. And, <laughs> you know, race teams are not stable businesses. For, for every one that makes a great success of it, there's scores that uh, go under with, with heaps of debt. So probably he was too sharp to get himself into that position. But I think he could have done a, a, a genuinely good job doing that simply because I think he'd have he'd have known the right way to do it and, and not overplayed his hand. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess in terms of his shrewdness, you would say that by the time his F1 career ended, by then the, the, the IRL cart defection that Matt was talking about had happened. So he probably looked at American racing and went, that's not a stable place to try and launch a team at the moment. I'm also fascinated by Irvine's insistence here that he loved racing so much he was determined to continue after driving because we've barely seen him since his F1 career <laughs> ended so he obviously changed his mind about that one last thing then before we get to the track action during this weekend which was uh, one of two home races for BMW and Mercedes both manufacturers ruled out any interest in supplying customer teams in the future BMW boss Mario Tyson said it would be a disadvantage to work with another team alongside Williams because he felt a manufacturer could only achieve the overall optimum package by working with one team. And Mercedes Norbert Haug said Mercedes was not in a position to supply two teams. However, he praised Ferrari for supplying two customers, Sauber and Prost, with year-old engines, which he felt helped F1. He said it was important that there are manufacturers supplying more than one team, even if Mercedes could not do it themselves. Matt, what did you think at the time of this stance from F1's two big German brands? Almost a bit patronising. <laughs> the way uh, Haug refers to what Ferrari's doing is, like, oh, it's, it's nice they're doing that charity work there. I mean, Ferrari, who's who has just beaten McLaren Mercedes to one title, clearly on the way to beating McLaren Mercedes to another title, about to smash them for several years in a row. Yeah, obviously being hurt by not optimizing its package around its own engine. It's just a, just a, mis- a misrepresentation of the situation, really. But also very early 2000s F1 manufacturer boom to say you must focus on your premier works team and build every effort of your packaging around it you could sell your old kit and still do that as Ferrari clearly proved uh, just shows it's a nicer it's a nicer atmosphere today on that front where customer deals do make a bit more sense for both parties it's worth noting that today there is a, a regulation that means the FIA can compel engine suppliers to supply more teams if they want to. If It's down to the fact that if there aren't enough engine suppliers, that means they can say, right, okay, you can't just do this. You've got to supply up to three. So there is a mechanism to, uh, to avoid this kind of attitude, as well as the fact that the engines are much more tightly controlled in terms of the spec. You can't, uh, you can't have year-old engines in the same way. Um, as uh, as you could then, or even as we've had in slightly more recent years when people did have have older ones. But yeah, it's it just tells you how different the business model was. There wasn't this. Oh, we could actually make a few quid towards our engine program by uh, by selling these. So it's uh, it reflects an attitude that was prevalent at the time and kind of was the the logical way of doing things. But from today's perspective, seems quite odd. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a charity work on the part of Ferrari. The size of that engine bill is one of the things that sent Prost under at the end of this year. Um, Let's get on with the the action then, shall we? To the delight of the home fans, we had an all-Schumacher front row, which I mentioned at the start, with Michael edging Ralph in qualifying. 
and there were fireworks between the brothers straight away when the lights went out. Ralph made the better start, and as he attacked on the inside, Michael moved across to shut the door, moving Ralph towards the pit wall and forcing him to back off. Michael explained himself after the race, saying, The start was key to the race, and I had to do anything I could to keep Ralph behind me. I left him room, and it was hard, but it was necessary. He added that he felt uh, Ralph had enough space, saying, I don't think he touched the wall. <laughs> um, and pointed out that maybe from the outside it looks unfair, but that's the way the rules are, which I guess is referring to the you-can-make-one-move thing that uh, Michael was very much a proponent of. You can both come in on this, but we'll go to Ed first. What did you think of this move off the line? Well, it was kind of typical Schumacher, wasn't it? And those moves were frowned upon. However, the bottom line is they did work for him. And they work because the driver that he's doing them to move out, moves across and yields. Now, Ralph didn't have to move over. And if you're on a straight and someone comes across on you and hits you, that is your fault. Now, it's easy to say that when you're not charging down towards the first corner with 20 cars behind you, risking having a huge crash doing that. But Michael did it because he could kind of intimidate people. And you kind of needed people to stand up to that and he'd have probably stopped doing it. So it, there was a ruthlessness in it. So it was kind of expected. It was still frowned upon. And you don't see it quite quite extreme like that these days, but it was okay. It was kind of part of what Schumacher did. Intimidatory, yeah, effective, certainly. And if someone's not going to push back, then you're going to keep doing it. So it's a really interesting philosophical question, actually, because I don't like people. I think when you're on a straight, if anyone does some kind of move that forces you to swerve or break or something, that is problematic fundamentally. But it's a gentle squeeze Schumacher can can say well I move across he kept moving so I so I kept moving so it, it's it's a really interesting example of the battle that's going on between drivers and it would have been interesting if Ralph who obviously Michael probably knew would not do that had been willing to just say no I'm gonna stand my ground if you want to if you want to hit me hit me and let's see what happens yeah Schumacher needed more of that from other people as in to stand their ground just hit him into a wall and see what happened next I, he was allowed to get away with too much by the rest of the field. There, there were just too many cynical stances and kind of attempts to be innocent about it afterwards. And it, when it was stuff that was blatantly, needlessly intimidatory, it, it reached... This wasn't the worst of it. He did worse moves than this. He did get caught out at the start a few times by doing a move like this that then ended in, ended in a collision. Um, but, yeah, I I understand. It, it wasn't really a penalizable offence, but it's the sort of thing that actually, if you had a bit more self-respect, you ought to look at that and go, actually, I'm too good to need to do this. I'm faster than everybody else on this grid. I don't need to weave someone, let alone my little brother, into a wall at the start of a race just to make that point. It's it's a, it's a shame that was part of his game because it, it didn't need to be. Yeah, I remembered this in my head as being like brutal and, you know, Ralph was going to end up in the pit wall. When you watch it back, I think, Possibly he did just about leave him space and Ralph could have maybe kept his foot in. But I also agree, and I think Montoya is the example here. If Michael had been sharing the front row of Montoya, he probably already knew by Nürburgring that he couldn't do that to Montoya because Montoya would hold his ground. And it was a reflection of the fact that I guess he knew Ralph was going to move out the way. Ralph stormed out of the track on Sunday night without really speaking to the media. Not necessarily because of this. Um... We'll obviously come to why he stormed out shortly. 
But he spoke to Reuters on the Tuesday after the race and about the start. He said, that kind of thing isn't exactly very pleasant for the person on the receiving end. But Michael was just defending his position. I would have done exactly the same in his situation. Michael has always driven really hard, but never unfairly. He said he'd spoken to Michael on the phone and that they were looking forward to another battle next time out at the French Grand Prix. Vili Weber, who managed both Schumachers, weighed in as well, saying Ralph wasn't actually as close to the wall as it looked on TV and that Michael's defensive driving was only normal. Matt, Ralph had obviously had time to cool off by this point, but what did you think of his handling of it outside of the heat of the moment? It's, it's this family relationship thing, isn't it? What else What else could Ralph do, really? Uh, uh, earlier on, we referenced like the perception that Ralph owed his F1 career to Michael. I do think he did a little bit. I don't think that meant Ralph wasn't good enough to be in F1, but I would imagine he was aware deep down that he probably wouldn't have got the attention that would have got him as far as F1 based on his junior career without having that having that link i think there were other drivers who didn't who were achieving similar things before f1 who didn't then go on to have a multi-grand prix winning f1 career schumacher's name ralph schumacher's name helped him without a doubt and yeah i i'm sure if it had been somebody else ralph would not have given himself the time to be diplomatic and think through what to say i think there would have been a, a a curt and justifiably grumpy post-race interview happening. It was it was an unfair position for Michael to put Ralph in, and Ralph handled it well. But I kind of wish he hadn't. <laughs> Would have made more impact if he just stood his ground on and off the track. Yeah, it'd have been great if they'd have collided, and then Ralph said, "If he tries to do that to me again, I'm going to stand my ground again." Absolutely, that's what you want. Definitely, that would probably done Ralph's career more favors long term as well. Yeah, <laughs> let's get to the other thing that annoyed Ralph in this race then. Uh, and it's the penalty that cost him any chance of battling for the win in the second half of the race. The Schumachers pitted together on lap 28 with Ralph right up behind Michael. But as they left the pits, Ralph ran over the pit exit white line and he picked up a 10 second stop go penalty for this, which seems brutal compared to the rubbish five second time penalties F1 has today. <laughs> Ralph complained afterwards that the penalty was harsh, uh, saying he wasn't a hazard to anyone and that the officials deprived the fans of an exciting battle for the win. Michael sympathised with his brother, saying the penalty was absolutely tough, but you have to live with it. There was less sympathy from within Williams. Frank Williams said the rules were clear and the stewards didn't have much choice. Patrick Head was asked if Ralph was unlucky and he said, I don't think you could call it luck because the rules are the rules. And BMW's Gerhard Berger said Ralph made a mistake and you have to respect the rules. Ed, let's, I mean, it is a penalty, you can't cross the line, but was a 10 second stop go harsh for this infringement? I think purely if you're talking of what would be a correct penalty for it. It was a bit harsh because it's not just the 10 seconds you'll stop for, it's the time you lose in the pit lane as well. So yes, but that was the going rate. So clear infringement, that's the penalty. Fine. It was a bit stupid because it was known to be an issue. This had been a talking point for a while. You can think back to the Schumacher-Frentzen incident in Montreal a few years before that led to, to Frentzen crashing that there was this talking point about cars rejoining. And yeah, it's something drivers needed to be aware of. And it's still something that flares up every now and again 
today obviously we had the monaco thing i think it was last year wasn't it where we had those protests because of people driving onto the line but not over it which was allowed because in fact schumacher michael schumacher rather did take a bit of a bite of the line as he came out because michael schumacher because he's michael schumacher because he's rigorous he knows you can go onto the line but not over it ralph schumacher was too busy looking for traffic and it also should be noted that that would probably have been less distracting i think it was coulthard who was bearing down on him had Ralph Schumacher not overshot his pit box a little bit, that was reckoned to have cost him about a second in the pit stop as well. So, you know, all these things come together and add up. And it's you can look at it two ways. You can say it's a petty penalty, but the white line was there for a reason. It's to stop people coming out of the pits and just barreling across at a much slower speed of other traffic. And you should know it, or you can just say, or you can say it's down to drivers. It's a simple rule. It's not that hard. Just adhere to it. So, yeah, it was early in the time of this happening but there was no ambiguity about the rules and if you look at the footage it wasn't like he crossed the line by a millimeter it it was it was with great disregard of the white line and of course you get an advantage because the more you open up the corner the more pace you can carry through it so I would say it's just a really stupid reason to have a very promising Grand Prix compromised frankly. Yeah I I prefer Penalties to be too harsh rather than too lenient because they're meant to be there as a deterrent. Um, But that's an argument for another day. There was another element to this, which was that it emerged Ferrari had alerted race director Charlie Whiting to Ralph's transgression. This caused a bit of a storm on the Sunday evening and Ross Braun was left to explain why Ferrari weren't terrible villains for doing this. Ross told TV crews after the race, you don't see the communications between the teams and the FIA. I think it's normal. It's very common for the teams to ask the FIA what's going on in certain situations. I know we've had queries of what we've done in races and we've made queries on what other teams do in races. It's perfectly normal, so I don't see anything strange with that. Frank Williams didn't seem to mind either, saying that's generally what happens among ourselves when it gets tight at the front. Matt, why do you think there was such a reaction from fans about this? Was it just that they didn't realise this sort of thing went on back then? Do we know how Ferrari alerted Charlie Whiting? Did, they, did someone like wander down and give him a message or something? Or is this? Did this just? Be- I think they were emailing each yeah. other by this point. This, they? That's it. I I I was like, surely fans had seen plenty of like team bosses stomping down the pit lane, getting cross about stuff by this time. They knew this sort of thing happened. Was this more controversial because it was done by email? So they were like, oh, we didn't see it. Um, yeah. You know, we're we're well in the 2020s. We're very used to radio moaning and drivers and team bosses. You know, particularly a few years ago, team bosses before that little radio channel was shut down bleating about things they think a rival should be penalized for so i think it was just it was felt to be a bit incongruous by fans but as these reactions um from the team bosses at the time show they were all doing it all the time they were just hmm. you know not able to do it on the computer until quite near to that point they were probably coming you, you didn't see them waving their fists on tv on this occasion and that's probably why it looked more like subterfuge rather than something that was just happening every week anyway and then it's the question of who did it better than everyone else at shopping other people noticing things and not committing infringements it was <laughs> ferrari wasn't it yeah of course and that yeah, was a shock. lesson for williams and everyone else frankly yeah that's a good point yeah when you say sort of stomping or trudging down the pit lane i've got visions that's a very jean top thing to do wasn't it it wouldn't necessarily go and find the fia but he loved going and, and tugging on the back of a, a jumper of a team boss when the Schumacher was coming up to lap someone and that sort of thing, which I always felt was a bit for show, really. Um, anyway, let's stick with Nürburgring 2001. Ralph's problems dropped him to fourth by the end. 
so Montoya and Coulthard joined Michael on the podium. This was a big moment for Montoya. It was only his second finish of the season and came off the back of those two crashes in Monaco and Canada, which had put quite a lot of pressure on him to calm down. Montoya had a column in Autosport magazine in 2001, and in that he said he was almost as happy as Michael to take his second podium finish. Uh, he said he was aware of all the pressure after his two crashes, but he didn't feel under pressure because most of his retirements hadn't been his fault. He said his bigger problem had been setting up the car properly, which he felt he'd only got right in Brazil and Austria. Um, I think it's fair to say they were the two races where he'd looked the most competitive. Williams were pleased to see Montoya land a result, with Patrick Head believing that with a little bit of calming, Montoya could start to progress, and Frank Williams saying he just needed time to learn about F1 cars. Ed, Matt sort of hinted at this earlier, was this weekend a turning point in Montoya's rookie season? Yeah, in some ways it was. Obviously, he'd made a big mark early on with that pass on Schumacher into Lagos. It's always talked about. As we said, the results weren't there and the mistakes in the previous couple of races. I think there was a feeling in Williams that Montoya had got a little bit carried away with what happened into Lagos and the fact everybody was massively excited about him and was almost trying to sort of shortcut the learning process and overdoing it slightly when he wasn't at the pace that he, he hoped he could be. And, and what was positive about this race is he only finished, what, four seconds behind Schumacher. So there was the possibility he could have really gone 100% and tried to inch up and make a race of it. But I think the fact that he realised a second place was valuable for him and the team just settled down, bank that, rather than going on a Larry charge and risking making a mistake to get that guaranteed second place was important. So the only reason I sort of say in some ways a turning point, it didn't feel like a kind of sudden 90 degree turn, but I think it, he'd had that sort of mega start, the, the difficult period, and then it just gave him that nice little bit of stability. It's just, all right, okay, here's a nice just thing to build from. I've been sensible and I can get on with the rest of the season and the year gets stronger as the year progressed. So it, it, it certainly calmed his season. Yeah, I think I'm probably getting into semantics if I'm saying whether it's a turning point or a point of stability or whatever. But it was significant. Let's uh, let's put it that way. He really needed it. And it was more impressive than the Spain podium, which was a very inherited one in a, a traditional race where he was a long way behind. The, he he looked... He didn't actually do that many races like this where he was maybe not as not the quickest. You know, Ralph had been the Williams team leader that weekend, but he wasn't slow by any means. He got the job done very efficiently. And like you say, he didn't overstretch himself. It's not really what Williams signed Montoya for, though, was it? Williams signed Montoya for Interlagos-type performances, for intimidating Schumacher, Schumacher off the road days. I'm, I'm sure, you know, from what, as, as the quotes Glenn's just mentioned show, that... Uh, Frank and Patrick were relieved that Montoya had done this after smashing up their cars for two races and looking like they might have signed the wrong driver again. But I don't think if he kept doing this, that they'd been that excited and it might have made his place a bit more long-term vulnerable because ultimately he got the job done. He was efficient. He got a podium, but he was slower than Ralph. So yeah, good to not destroy a car, but there was a lot better still to come from Montoya. And it says a lot about Williams in this whole era that it was a race weekend where really they probably should have won that race. Yeah, definitely. One of those two drivers and one of them's driven over a white line the other one's not quite been as quick and has had to be sensible and take the the second place so it tells you how a little bit that team was 
had a quick package, but they were still a little bit all over the place. Still a step behind Ferrari in terms of that understanding of things. I had a lot of problems with getting the most out of the tyres because you had to scrub the, the Michelins, otherwise they were very poor at the start of stints. But they didn't seem to really understand exactly how to do that. And you never really knew what you were going to get out of the tyres. So there were all these confusing factors that meant that a car that had performance, certainly of one more races that year, didn't. And you can say the same probably about this whole Montoya Ralph Schumacher period at Williams and that's partly on the team and partly on the drivers well that seems like a good place to leave it then for Nürburgring 2001 I always think it's nice to choose a slightly left field race to cover uh, you know not one where people instantly go oh that's a famous iconic race partly because I think as we've shown here there's still plenty of news you can find to talk about from any weekend uh, but also, it does help us not burn through all the most famous races too quickly. So if you've got any left-field suggestions for not famous races you'd like us to, to cover and dig out the coverage around, uh, let us know. Uh, join the community on X or contact uh, bringbackv10s at thehighfromrace.com. Thanks to Ed and Matt for joining us for this one. Next time, we're covering a story that is famous for all the wrong reasons as we take a look back at Ferrari's disastrous 1992 season. The Athletic.